Let's Roll. This is Counter Charge, your podcast for all things Kings of War. as they delve into the world of Mantica and bring you in-depth coverage of all things Kings of War. 这是我们要跟大家谈一谈江山,这是Kings of War, Today's episode is taking a look at the growing Kings of War scene in Malaysia and Singapore. We're really excited to welcome three prominent members of the community to talk about the game and how it's played. But before we get there, we need to get some gamer intros and origin stories and how they found Kings of War. Gad, let's start with you. Yeah, uh, like, okay, like many others, I've actually uh, started with uh, Warhammer Fantasy back in about 2010 when 8th edition dropped. So uh, we w- there was quite a scene, and uh, I was a I was a resident wood elf player. Then uh, when uh, when AOS hit, we a couple of us we tried Kings of War, and we really liked it. So yeah, here we are. And let's turn it over to Nicholas. Same same question to you, sir. How you got into tabletop wargaming, and how did you find your way to Kings of War? Thank you, Rob. So I've been in a tabletop hobby for over a decade. Uh, like get I started with Warhammer Fantasy. It was like six act. Uh, at tail end of 6X or 7X, I used to play 40K, you know, and also dabble in uh, GW's specialist systems, BFG Epic, and its smaller incarnations like Apocalypse. Uh, I play. I also play Dystopian Wars, uh, as well as being a huge fan of Ganesha Games' Song of Blade and Hero system. Uh, as a fan of studying various gaming systems, I was cursory aware of Kings of War's first edition, but wasn't too familiar with it. It was very promising, though, so I kept it in the back of my mind. Then second ad hit, and I was very interested after I saw the changes that were implemented. What sealed the deal for me was when I discovered that Mr. Alessio Cavatore was behind the wheels, uh, and that gave me great confidence to dive headlong into the game after my Tomb Kings became refugees. Right there with you, there's a lot of folks that were playing Warhammer Fantasy. Question to you, Nicholas, did you really enjoy 6th versus 8th edition, or what was your favorite edition of Warhammer? Definitely uh, 6th edition and to to an extent 7th edition. I prefer the more tactical movements rather than just you know, sort of spamming hordes and throwing them at the enemy. <laughs> well, and that's probably one of the reasons why you like Kings of War so much. Because I tell people, even though Warhammer and Kings of War are vastly different, if you were to compare the two, it's, it's more similar to 6th edition than it is to 8th edition, where you had a lot of less deterministic play, random charge distances, and, and those kind of things. So Fully agree. You know, I really enjoy games that require skill to pilot uh, rather than winning at the list building stage. So Kings of War is a great fit for me personally. And last but not least, uh, countercharge favorite, darling of the Far East, uh, we have Paige. Paige, give us a little bit of your background story, how you got into tabletop wargaming and how you transitioned into Kings of War. I started by playing Magic the Gathering, right? I played the Urza block and the Odyssey block. 
And back then, the local magic shop had some tabletop games. I wasn't sure what they were, and I was pretty young at the time. I can't afford a tabletop hobby. But after I started working in 2012, I chanced by a, a tabletop war game store. And I'm more of a fantasy person. So although it's selling like fantasy and 40k, I prefer to play fantasy. And I almost went into Redkin and then the shop owner said, are you sure? You got to paint a lot of rats, you know? And I was like, okay, uh, let me switch up to Lizardman. Well, then I played it for like one year. And back then, our local Singapore scene, we have actually ETC players. They have, they, I think they just went to ETC for the very first time. So they came back very excited about the ETC format with all its comp rules. So we played under the ETC comp rules, which was a very competitive uh, rule set. Yeah. And after playing for one year, I didn't like it because uh, in ETC, like every race is, every faction is confined to a single role. There's only one best way to play it. So Lizardman is a very defensive role. At least that's what I knew at the time. So after one year of playing Lizardman, I decided to leave. And I went into War Machine and Hordes. And I think that at that time in 2013, that was the most popular competitive war game. So I went into it for three years. At that time, I also dabbled in a little bit of Malifaux 2nd Edition. By the time 2016, I was pretty sick of War Machine and Hordes also. There's a lot of gotchas in the games, which I kind of hate. You know, you lose because you forgot this one rule that allows the opponent to move two extra inches to kill your boss. So that was when I decided to go into Kings of War. And yeah, that time I think second edition dropped. I got a get demo game in, but at the time I was quite into War Machine and Hordes. So I stayed with it for one year longer until I decided, okay, I don't want to play War Machine and Hordes anymore. And I just jumped straight into Kings of War. And at that time, God was the, the, the guy pushing Kings of War. The, the main game for him was Kings of War. And that's how I got into Kings of War. I also played a few other games. I backed Kings of War Vanguard. And I got into... Currently, I play Warhammer 40k Kill Team and Age of Sigma Warcry, which is their skirmish version games for their sci-fi and fantasy universe. Yeah, so that's my history. What I got from that page is that we've got Gad to thank that you're playing Kings of War with us. <laughs> Definitely. Well, I'm going to throw it over to Steve. Yeah, in English this time, if that's okay, because that was a stretch. <laughs> that was a stretch for me. But we are really, really excited... Uh, to have you guys on the show. So we've got Paige and Gad from Singapore, and we've got uh, Nicholas from Malaysia. So first of all, tell us a little bit about the gaming scene where you live, because I think for, you know, we, we've looked at our, the people who listen to Countercharge, and they are from all over the world, about half from the US, um, and then across Europe, and from very other ways. We have quite a few Far East listeners, but most people won't be that familiar with the gaming scene over there in Singapore and Malaysia. So let's start off with uh, Paige and Gad. Tell us about what what's the gaming scene, the tabletop gaming scene like in Singapore? Uh, the tabletop scene in Singapore is uh, it's it's much uh, it's grown significantly. From uh, we used to have only one or two. Uh, uh, game stores that actually carry tabletop games, but recently we have seen more and more stores uh, emerge. Uh, 40k has always been uh, pretty big in Singapore, but uh, the general, most of the players in Singapore are what I call pretty competitive, win at, win at all costs, so basically they are pretty cheesy. <laughs> yeah, so uh, even for Kings of War, when I'm trying to push it, uh, we need a lot of tournaments to get people to come and play. Yeah, pe- pe- people want to play to win, as as 
that's what uh, I feel about the but it's it's growing there's more and more uh, board game shops tabletop shops that are and it's becoming more mainstream it's becoming more cooler for people to to actually meet someone else to play the game we also have like two local GW stores uh, yeah. they have exited Singapore quite a while back and they came back in recent years I think that's like two or three years back they started their local GW stores now we have two in Singapore and considering how small Singapore is, it's quite a lot. For people to imagine how small Singapore is, is you can drive to anywhere in Singapore within one hour. I think we find this, don't we? Because we know that you know GW is always at the forefront. It's you know it's the it's, it's the dominant scene, and 40k is the the world's biggest game. And what you find uh, when you have a game like that is because these these games have got a lot of you know the GW model is they like to release update after update after update because it keeps you buying. And that can turn off some people. So people tend to then start looking for other game systems. And that's where systems like Kings of War come into their own, I think, because people are looking for something different that doesn't have that, that gotcha element or that constantly new element. There's a lot more balance in it. Where GW starts, I think other game systems follow. So uh, Nick, tell us about Malaysia. Is it a similar situation over in Malaysia? So in Malaysia, the tabletop gaming scene, like what uh, Gart has mentioned, is picking up uh, in recent years. It used to be that you cannot even find you know, a community. This was back in the days when we don't have uh, Facebook or social media to you know, connect with each other. So games, as you, uh, other than Kings of War, uh, Games Workshop's presence is very strong in Malaysia. They have like six, at least six stores, of which uh, one we can find one in Penang, uh, I think three to four in Kuala Lumpur, which is the capital, and one further down south uh, in Johor, which is just right next to Singapore. So... The players here tend to you know, fall across a broad spectrum. You have uh, the group that is win at all costs. You also have the more relaxed, casual group. You also have you know, uh, fluffy players you know, or newbies that you want to try out. Fun- funky stuff, you know, the latest experiments or ideas. Um, in terms of what types of games uh, do we play, so because of GFDU's presence, it's the usual 40k and it's sub-games to a lesser extent Age of Sigma. You know, there are also pocket communities that play X-Wing, Star Wars Legions, Frostgrave, Flames of War, Warmer Hots. We also have a couple of guys that uh, run Battletech and uh, A Song of Ice and Fire. It's a pretty diverse scene. Uh, in Penang, you know, where, where I'm from, there are at least three to four places uh, that you can play you know, all kinds of games. No matter where you are in the world, the gaming is sort of the same, right? We're all playing different games, and uh, it's, it's just really interesting to hear your scene's not that much different than ours. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, you can say that. Yeah, that's a relief because because how big uh, America is, you you think that oh, there's a very big Kings of War following. But I guess if you compare it in proportion to GW game players, it's sort of about the same, I think. Absolutely. I mean, obviously here in the United States, um, and Steve can talk to the UK, but I mean, 40K is the juggernaut, right? They're the they're large the large game system. Everybody else seems to follow, and it could be kings of war or all the warlord games i mean really it's their pockets certain communities get a good champion or a leader and they push that game and they get their people the players in their area to play it and it becomes popular but like kings of war it's not popular everywhere in the u.s there's pockets and maybe steve maybe you can speak a little bit to the uk scene yeah so i think because wargaming was it kind of originated in the uk to an extent um I think a lot of we see a, a bigger diversity of games. If I go to a local gaming club here, sure, there are so some gaming clubs. There's just a huge uh, 40k presence, but there is a really big population of historical war gamers. 
uh, in the UK. Um, and that's where Wargaming came from, is people playing historical war games. Back when I was a kid, you know, before Games Workshop arrived on the scene heavily, I know that people were playing like their own rule sets. People were, you know, printing out or typing up their own rule sets and playing historical war games. And then when GW arrived, people kind of like uh, migrated onto GW. So that population of original Warhammer gamers came from pretty much from a historical wargaming community. Um, and a lot of those guys are still around and still playing war games. So I think the wargaming population over here in the UK, they tend to be a bit older, I would say. Um, there is a younger population picking up games and playing 40k. So the 40k gamers tend to be a bit younger. But the the the, the big time wargamers who play all sorts. So if I go to the the wargaming club that's closest to me, it's it's a lot of historical gamers. There's a lot of people playing like World War II um, or um, medieval war games or uh, that, that kind of style. And there are board gamers and there's a big um, D&D population as well. So um, there's just a big diversity, uh, more of a diversity. But it seems to me that over there in the Far East, it certainly seems to be younger a population playing war games than that that I'm familiar with. Here, it's a lot of middle-aged guys, but over there, it seems to be a young guys. Do you think that's that's right? Do you think it's a younger population playing war games? Majority are probably in their thirties, and with uh, a small handful in their forties, and even less in their fifties. So I think majority is is in their twenties, thirties, and forties, and thirties being the most. That's the general feel I have for, for my, our local scene in Singapore. In Penang, it's uh, roughly the same. We, I know, I can count on one hand how many uh, four, people in 40s or 50s that, that play. Uh, generally speaking, it will be 20s or 30s. I think 30s would be the, you know, the larger demographic due to you're coming out, you know, you have the excess money to spend on gaming. Right, it's the kind of time when you you're a little bit more settled into your career, and you actually right. you're not and focusing necessarily much, so much on on maybe finding a partner or <laughs> securing your career. So that's when you have money, and you start looking for hobbies. Right, you'll go back to the hobbies that you had when you were a child. Correct, um, and and sorry, and we kind of get as we're older, we kind of get sick of the toxic online community in video games. That's quite a lot of toxic communities in the video gaming scene. So that's why I got sick of it. And that's when I stopped playing video games and uh, went into the hobby. As uh, Once I started the hobby, I stopped playing video games altogether. That's an interesting point. One thing that I'm pretty keen to just maybe dive in a little bit about, which is, you know, I, I believe that video games, they can be fun, but there's something about tabletop wargaming where you're playing with a person in front of you on a table. It's a different kind of game. It's a different kind of atmosphere. And I think it's one that, unfortunately, you know, the younger generation here in the U.S. that are all addicted to their iPads and Switches and all that other stuff, they're, they're going to lose some of that. Maybe to all three of you guys, what is it about tabletop gaming that you weren't able to get from, whether it was video games or some other hobby that you were doing? So uh, for me personally, I enjoy the company. I, I like to, to uh, be at a table with, with my friends rather than looking at someone's name digitally on, on my uh, monitor. I like to be able to clap them on the shoulder and say, you know, well done, you know, when, when they pull off a move which I did not see it coming. Likewise, uh, their facial expressions are priceless when they manage to crush their armies. This is something that... Uh, the, the interaction uh, between people, the real-life interaction, rather than just digitally typing stuff out, which I find very enjoyable. And of course, you know, after the game, pre- and post-game actually, uh, having drinks to just talk about the game, and how what the could have been, might have been, what have been. These are all fundamental aspects which I personally myself very enjoy. 
when it comes to tabletop gaming compared to say PC gaming. So okay. there are a few aspects of a tabletop hobby that um, you can't get from video gaming. So the first thing is uh, I like to play board games also. So there is this fun about playing board games where the, there's a very physical mechanics to it that there's dice, there's cards, you count this, you draw cards. And that's the fun physical mechanic of uh, board games which you also get in tabletop games. The second thing I think is... Uh, that this uh, online games, uh, video games are mainly more, um, what do you call it, reflex-oriented. You know, you got to, whether it's an action game, a shooter, you have to have fast reflexes and that. And when we grow older, that kinds of goals, kind of, we kind of slow down, so we can't play that as much anymore. And of course, the community is much nicer. You see the person... You see the opponent in person, right? So when you lose the game, you can't scold vulgarities at that person, which is what tends to happen in uh, online communities. And lastly is the aspect of having the actual figurine in your hand, the actual model in your hand. So even before I started the hobby, I would appreciate nice, nicely painted action figures and figurines and toys and like collectors who collect things like uh, Iron Man figurines. So this is something that you can actually collect and you can play and you can convert, model, and customize. So that's that's also a really fun part about that. And I think for a lot of Wargamers, you need to have a little bit of that interest for you to be interested in Wargaming. Yeah, uh, it's it's similar for me. I just enjoy being with... Uh, I enjoy the social aspect, you know, trash-talking before, doing it after the game. And uh, I really enjoy, I think we're all guilty of this, we, we all enjoy thinking about our next game, thinking about what units we're going to bring, thinking about how we're going to play the game. It's different from like computer games, you know, you do actually have a tabletop, tabletop game, you actually have to set aside time, you need to arrange, then there's the anticipation aspect of it. Yeah, I really enjoy being with someone and uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's just very fun to just play with friends. I mean, we, we all start off as people that we, we, we hardly know each other but over time we, we get we get great and yeah we just have a great time playing the game and also talking about the game to other people People other people will be interested to know about our games like when there are games happening in Penang uh, we actually have a WhatsApp group so we all can chat with each other so when the, when the game's happening in Singapore people in, in Malaysia will be interested to know what's happening how, how did the game go and likewise for, for games in Penang yeah, we have a Singapore a Kings of War Singapore and Malaysia WhatsApp chat group. And That's where have, most of the activity happen. Yeah, and we have uh, one one player from Indonesia for Bali who I actually visited during during my proposal trip with my with my now wife. So we, we had a quite we had a great time playing over there. Well so you went you went to Bali to propose to your wife and on the yes. way you played you played uh, Kings of War with them. Yes. <laughs> I played with uh with uh, Jesse Driver. He, he's from the US, uh, Virginia, sure. I believe. So he actually moved to Bali and he married uh, a local over there. So we, we got to know each other through the King, Kings of War Fanatic page. So I, I was there playing in his backyard. So it was a pretty cool experience. I've been to Bali, actually. It's a beautiful island. Actually, all of Indonesia, you, you're, you're quite, you know, relatively fortunate. I think you live in a really beautiful place. And I think to sit and play war games in uh, surroundings like that is kind of a dream. So how many people are in your in your kind of your WhatsApp group? What's the population like? We're going to look at it right now. 
<laughs> it's yeah, it's probably about fifty or so, or maybe more. I'm mean, not too sure. Uh, oh, yeah, about fifty-three. Wow. Yeah, fifty. Yes. But not all of them are active. Mm. So there's a lot of uh, people who are just keeping quiet, but occasionally looking at what's the development in Kings of War. So hopefully, with so much uh, third edition chatter, we'll kind of get them interested about Kings of War again. I'm sure some of them read it from time to time. But not a lot of it, or not everybody is talking on the chat group. I think with every community, you always have a few lurkers, right? But that's that's a reasonable population. Um, so when you guys play, do you play? Do you play in shops? Do you play? Do you have a local gaming club, or is it just in your houses? What's the kind of environment that you're playing in? We have a store that's in a very prominent mall in Singapore, so we tend to play there because, uh, firstly, we have locker space there, so we keep our armies there, and that, that store actually brought in a shipment of Kings of War stuff. At the start of second ad, they they had a de- negotiation with Mantic and they brought in a lot of uh, Kings of War second edition stuff. At the launch of second edition, they have quite a lot of Mantic product. So that's where we tend to play more often. But we do go around different sh- stores as well, especially if we're quite close to the store owners because... Some store owners might be very touched, very, very, I don't know what, you, sensitive that you go and you go to their stores and play games that they don't carry. So we must make sure that we're pretty okay, we're in good relationship with the store owner and they're okay with us playing there. So that's basically where we play. There's another shop, there's another store that um, he has, it's a very relatively small store with uh, a bit of GW products, but he does order from suppliers on demand. So if you say, I would like to buy the latest Clash of Kings book, he'll place the order with his supplier. So that's another store that we go to as well. In Penang, we are not as lucky as Singapore, where you know you guys have sort of uh, connections uh, to Mantic. Uh, Mantic's presence in Malaysia can be considered non-existent. So we play at our own game club, which is an independently funded establishment. We built this game club, you know, by gamers, for gamers, no businesses attached. So you can play whatever game system that you want there. It's nothing fancy, but there is enough space to host a small tourney and to store terrain and supplies. Uh, otherwise, there are also other various uh, local game stores out there that sell other products and provide tables for gaming. So we usually play at our own game club. You know, uh, my, my schedule is fairly tight every day, so I don't have the luxury to do as much promotion like what God does, uh, although I hope that may change in the future. Yeah, so it's fair to say that it's it's not that easy to get hold of the Mantic models and rules. So how has Kings of War been received? You know, so if people see you playing this game, uh, perhaps uh, in Singapore, it's because you're in a store, more people will walk by. Do people come over and ask about it? Is that how you kind of propagate, kind of spread the word? Is, is there interest from the kind of the general game-playing public, do you think? So far, uh, we, we have some converts from uh, I mean, they used to pay 40k. Then some of them, as mentioned, they do get tired with all the rules changes and the power creep. So we do have some players from the 40k scene who has uh, who actually uh, go to Kings of War for their fantasy fix where they look at us play. Especially when uh, you know we our games are fast, we have so much fun. Every time when there's a double one, we scream and shout. You know, I'm a very vocal player. I I hope that tries that that helps to attract uh, players. To, to the game and uh, being being able to use whatever models you want is is it's a it's a real draw 
a lot of people have uh, nice historical models uh, from other ranges that they will want to use. So that, that aspect really helps uh, to get people uh, playing the game in, in Singapore. Yeah, um, when me and God play, I, I have this little small table standy that says we're playing Kings of War. And uh, it comes with a QR code to our WhatsApp group and a little, little PDF or, that I created an intro document for Kings of War. So people can scan the QR code and they'll be able to see the PDF of the intro document. But so far, when we play in a, such a public mall space, the people who come and take a look, they're just browsing. You know, they're not really going to go into a war game. So that's what I find after playing and doing this for quite a while, that we have a, little, a lot of people browse, but not, not a single one of them convert. Whereas uh, people who are more serious into wargaming, if they spend a little bit more time deciding whether they want to play, firstly, they'll look at the shelves of the store, right? And GW products just look so much better than Mantic products. And if you can imagine the products from Mantic at the start of second edition, they're in these cases, they look like DVD cases. Printout, is, the, the printing on it is not very beautiful. So Mantic product tends to lose to GW when they are sitting side by side on the shelves, when you talk to the store staff, they will tend to, I think they will naturally tend to push GW stuff more because they have more people playing it. The staff themselves know how to play it and the store earns more money from, from GW products. So that's the challenge we face. Yeah, I think, you know, at the end of the day, all store owners are, are business people, right? So when I've spoken to the store owners around where I live here in England, they might understand it a bit more, but they're only going to stock things if it's going to make them money, right? So you almost need a playing population and say, well, look, these guys are playing this game and they want to support this company. So if you stock it, it will sell. And that's the beginning, isn't it? So if you can get people interested, but you're right, I think possibly um, over where you are, um, the presentation is more important. So I think we're, we're kind of used over here to things maybe not being perfect and beautiful and actually we almost distrust that it's so shiny i don't know don't necessarily trust that and there's that underdog we'd like to support the underdog but actually if something's beautiful a new player is gonna be more likely to pick it up because it looks polished right so right. having said that um kings of War obviously appeals to you guys and you've picked it up and you can play with your existing models um what is it that appealed to you about Kings of War? What is it that kind of made you stand up and say, this is something I want to try out? You talked a little bit about how when first edition you came out, you were like, well, this looks interesting, but I'm going to stick with what I've got. What was it about second edition and the rule set that really drew you to the game? So I've played quite a few war games from Fantasy to War Machine and Hordes, Melee 4. Um, I played Guild Ball. I actually touched a little bit of 40k as well. And Kings of War, the best thing about it when I played it was that it's a clean rule set, it's a simple rule set, and there are no gotchas. One of the main things I tell people, experienced war gamers, when I play, uh, when I'm trying to introduce the game to them, I say there's only two pages of special rules. And I think there's more now, but that's that kind of speaks to how there's very little gotchas in the game. Because as a competitive gamer, I kind of hate it the most when I lost, not because of strategy, but because I didn't know something. And that's the worst way to lose. And you feel like you just wasted a whole two and a half hours playing it. And even more time when you think about the time you go down to the game store, just to lose because of a missing knowledge of the game. 
So this these are the aspects that I love about Kings of War. And yeah, clean rule set, no gotchas, and very simple to play. Yeah, uh, likewise for me, uh, what really appealed to me is the diversity. You know, you can really, there's no core special rare requirement in Kings of War. So you can build whatever army you like. Like for my for myself, I actually have a almost full Mantic Dwarf army. It's pretty aggressive with uh, Brock Riders and Rangers. So I'm, I'm, I'm more in your face rather than the traditional Dwarf that is, that is like at the corner shooting you with war machines. Yeah, so I really like that aspect of Kings of War. The freedom in list building, freedom with the models. And as, as what Pitch said, every time we have a game, when we talk after the game, we don't... I mean... We didn't lose because of a rule or gotcha. We lose because of a mistake we did, a deployment or a wrong a, a wrong tactical error we that we did during the game. So that really that really appeals to me. Uh, over to you, Nick. What I like about the game, you know, if I actually there's quite many things that I like about the the system. You know, if I were to narrow it down to my top three, I would say in no particular order. Uh, number one, each unit has a role to play. So. In a bit of a sort of move away from you know, traditional war games, each unit's role can also change quite a bit if I take them at you know a troop regiment or hot level. You know, this brings a lot of dynamic to tactics and list building. Uh, second thing I, I find that Kings of War rewards uh, player skill. More than more often than not, I seldom encounter a situation. Actually, let me rephrase that. I never encountered a situation, you know, in my games in playing Kings of War that I've lost due to, you know, like so and so unit is overpowered, or in a, or you know, a spell or a magic item is a hard counter to my force. No such thing at all. Third, uh, the balance is top notch in this game. I recall an article by I think Nick Williams, the one with a linear graph, you know, where he explains how the rules committee approach the concept of army balance in Kings of War. So reading the article, and I think recently he used the game Supreme Commander as another example of uh, how they approach balance. And doing so gives me great confidence then, that the rules committee knows what they are doing. And it really shows on the tabletop, you know, and the, you know, the version 2, Clash of Kings, Uncharted Empires, and, you know, everything that they've done so far, it shows that, you know, the balance is there. And to me, that's really important because I like the social aspect of the game. And, you know, when two players can have a good time, you know, without, like what Paige mentioned, gotchas, you know, that, yeah, I like that a lot. So that's the most appealing thing to me about Kings of War. Game balance is also a very important factor to me. Is I'm, When I play war games, I always choose my army based on aesthetics first. I choose chose Lizardman or Redkin, whatever army, because I like the look first. And then I try to make it work. So I, I like the models. Now I try to use the rules to be able to win. And in that aspect, game balance is very important. And of course, uh, there shouldn't be only one way to play every faction. Then what's the point of building lists? There's only one best list for every faction. Then there's no point building any list. Right. So that's, yeah, that's very important. Imagine a game of chess. If the black side is uh, overpowered and the white side is weaker, who would want to play chess? Right. Yeah, you guys hit on a couple things there. What I think the last thing you hit on was there's a lot of internal balance in the list, you know, or in the army design where you can play, you can play each army multiple ways all in an effective manner. But something that Nicholas said that I really am keen to maybe you guys dive into more about this idea of you didn't lose the game 
because of I didn't know something or I didn't lose the game because of a gotcha moment or lose the game in list building. But I do believe that there are players that actually do enjoy that gotcha type of game. I think GW caters to that style of game player. They do want to build the broken list. I know a few players in Singapore. They play 40k and I think they can be like semi-retired. They hardly play a single game. But whenever the new book or the new codex drops, they will read through it and they will build the most broken list out there without even needing to play. They are so used, they're, they're so used to playing 40k that they can build the best list out there without playing 40k and they probably never played in years already and they still can build very good lists. And yeah, that's that's winning the game at the list building stage, right? So I really don't like that, unfortunately. Or fortunately, I don't know. And GW, I think the the way they play, I think releasing single army codex is just not the way to go. You should release all the lists together, right? Because there's always power creep. Now, it's, I think they re-released the Space Marines. And so they are kind of, I don't know if they're broken, but usually when a new book comes out, they are they are one hit above the rest in, in, in terms of power. And that's what they do because they release the new rules with the new model. So when they're stronger, everybody wants to buy them. So that's their strategy, which I don't agree with. But this is marketing, right? This is market forces. And this is GW's genius in some ways. I appreciate from a gameplay perspective, it's not, it, it's not ideal to the kind of gamer that likes to win based on their own skill. But if you want to sell models, because that's how this company uh, makes its money, that's exactly the right way to do it because you've got people locked into the universe. They're completely invested in the storylines. They're invested in the gameplay. And so, yeah, they will spend X amount of, of pounds or dollars or whatever it is on new models because it means that they get that that thrill of victory based on their quote unquote intelligence and how they built their list. Right. So that's one way to appeal to demographic. And I think like Rob says, uh, the type of players that you find in Kings of war tend to be more strategic in that what they want to be able to do is to win through their own skill. And you can be clever in your list building, but if you're terrible at the game, it doesn't matter how clever your list is. Right. To some extent, I think uh, because the way GW makes the games, uh, it breeds a certain type of community, and by and large, for 40k gamers tend to be a bit more toxic, right? They they make a lot of noise when they lose. When they lose, they'll complain about things being broken, right? When but when they win, it's the other way around. So, so I think part of Kings of War's success in the community is also based on how balanced the game is. So there's not so much frustration when you win or lose the game. Yeah, touching on that. Um, just to add my two pence in, we do have players here like that as well, you know, where victory is more or less uh, determined at the list building stage and who gets the first dice roll, uh, first, first turn dice roll. But there are also players who try to bring a sort of so-called fluffy lifts and, you know, uh, play within their own group. Not to say that, you know, win at all costs players are wrong in that sense, but Kings of War itself does breed the players that like to win through strategic skills as well as in list building. Now, in terms of Codex Creep, things of all, I feel it's really bare minimum. All armies are developed at the same time, playtested at the same time, released at the same time. There's no, you know, um, additional gotcha rules. You know, you don't have to buy additional supplements to get a heads up. Both uh, Nick and Paige said, that's that's what we had success, a little bit of success with. Uh, 
40k players or players from other games that appreciate the balance and the player skill involved in Kings of War and they want something else. You know, because Age of Sigma it's pretty similar to 40k. It's so if they want to they are, they want to scratch their rank and, and flank itch, they would tend to gravitate towards Kings of War, especially when they can use their current models. Maybe we're being a little bit harsh on 40k players. You know, the majority of players that I know that play 40k, are, they're not that kind of screaming tantrum kind of player. I think it's what you, where you see that kind of behavior is a higher end competitive play, right? And because we're a smaller community, perhaps higher end competitive play is just more accessible to regular players because we have a smaller community, right? So it's that kind of public face of 40k that gets that bad rap, whereas you know, the majority of 40k players that I know have are quite happy to play friendly games with their friends and there's not that kind of necessarily that that bad vibe, but because it's a larger community, it kind of it percolates up, right? So you, you see some of that behavior a little bit more. So obviously we're moving uh, pretty soon to a new rule set. Um, thinking about the second edition rule set, is there, any, is, is there anything that you guys think, oh, I wish this was different or I'd like to change? What kind of changes would you like to see um, in the new rule set as we go forward. I'd like to see faction-specific items and spells. I'm a huge fan of factions having their own distinctive identity. So having unique items or spells would be really nice from a flavor point of view. I think one of the complaints, I wouldn't say complaints, one of the issues that fan sitters I have you know, in Penang is that each faction really lacks flavor, uh, especially if you're used to Warhammer Fantasy's, what, 30 years of... Uh, history. I know this is being addressed somewhat in version 3, and I'm very excited for that. In terms of the you know special rules, Phalanx is the one which I want to see some rework. You know, uh, I know that in the recent leaks, you know, there's been some hints that you know it, it will change a lot. Uh, so I'm actually quite keen to see what's going to happen to Phalanx as well. I'm generally quite happy, you know, with the core rule set as it is. And I just hope that it will not become too messy or convoluted in version 3. Version 2 is very clean right now. You know, everything is sort of preset, you, know, you can plan accordingly. Version 3, from what I've seen, you know, you can have differing heights for different unit types, unit strengths, you know, are all over the place. So, tentatively, I just hope that, you know, it would not be uh, too messy. That Those are my thoughts. Yeah, I'd like to echo on what Nick said also. I'm kind of cautiously optimistic about 3rd edition. Uh, one of the things that I don't like as much on Kings of War right now, and I said it a couple of times on After Dark, is that I don't really like the concept of unit strength. It's an additional stat line which does nothing for the game other than the scenario. So it is an additional thing you have to remember. And now going into third edition, uh, it's a separate stat line and a horde might not be unit strength 3. So you got to remember one extra thing which does nothing in the game except to score. It doesn't help them fight better. It doesn't help them become more defensive. It's just another number to crunch in, in determining who wins. So that's uh, one thing that I don't like as much about unit strength. A, a way to get around it, I've always thought, is to make the scenarios more dynamic. So it's not always based on uh, how many things you have in this area, how many things you have in that area. So I think Kings of Water edition from the leaks I've seen so far, the, the one that I was really interested in is the bluff tokens. So I think that makes the game a little bit more dynamic and it's not very straightforward. So scenarios being too straightforward is how this uh, unit strength got implemented in the first place. So another thing, uh, like 
cautiously optimistic about is I hope the game doesn't get too complicated. So it's good to add flavor, but without making the game too complicated. So there's a there's a fine balance that you have to tread because you add more flavor, that means more special rules and unique rules. Right now, in second edition, the, the flavor of each army is not immediately obvious, but as you play each army more, you realize the unique strength and style of each faction, which, yeah, it, it's not obvious at the at first sight. So we'll see what third edition does to this. Yeah. Sorry, God, before you jump in, can I just add in a bit when Paige says that it's not, the flavor is not so obvious? I think this is because it's not blatantly spelled out to you or, you know, like, you initially need to play it out. This is where the more strategic gameplay of Kings of War uh, brings out, you know, in, in, in terms of player skill. So when I look at an, an, an army, you don't really know, okay, how does this army play? Like, you know, everything just looks more or less the same. You know, but when you bring it on the table, you play a few games, then only you realize that, yeah, actually I can do this or I cannot do that. That's really cool. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, so far, I mean, I really like second edition. It's clean, as mentioned. But there are some, primarily the formations. A lot of the formations introduced in second edition are pretty much auto-take. Like the Elohai formation, which Paige has taken against me more than 10 times, I guess. Sorry, Paige. And, <laughs> and there's uh, some uh, special characters like Basusu, you know, he's in almost every evil army. It's it's just things like that. That uh, I mean, I'm glad that there's no formations in that. I mean, I, I do agree that formations are a good way to get people to take units that are otherwise not taken. So probably they might want to tone it down a bit in in third ad cock updates. Uh, otherwise, uh, I do agree with the unit strength issue, but I think I think after a few games you'll probably get used to it. I mean, most most, it seems that most of the units' strength is standard. There's only a few units with lower or higher unit strength than the usual. And I'm also quite excited to these scenarios. I mean, one thing I always tell people when they try Kings of War is to not be kill, play the scenario. You know, Playing the scenario makes the game so much more dynamic, so much more. It brings up a lot of tactical options and it makes the game more fun. In my opinion, something that Paige said, and then and Gad also mentioned, this idea of unit strength. Because in my mind, I think part of the reason why they went with unit strength was it was really hard for people to figure out how many points were in like a dominate circle, for example, because it's it's hard for people to understand where they are in the game, and unit strength made that a little easier. However, to Paige's point, if you start adjusting all the unit strengths so they're all different, then you're in the same boat. Where I don't know that a horde is three points and a regiment is two points and so then you're back to square one at that point so yeah at least it's easier math is one two three <laughs> yeah i think in in regards to formations i think uh kyle has said on on the direct misfire podcast that formations aren't in third edition to start with they're not ruling out bringing them back because the idea of formations was balancing right so the idea is to bring to get people to bring units they wouldn't otherwise have brought and there were a few in there, like the Elohi formation, which everyone was like, uh, why is this here? But, um, you know, those formations we won't be seeing. What we'll be seeing is uh, kind of a, a rewrite of balance. So their hope, I think, is that they'll be able to create some of those effects using stuff like the keywords. So, for example, the mummy keyword, if you have a unit with mummy and you have a pharaoh next to it, then that 
you know, with his aura, he will give everyone with the keyword mummy elite, which is the same as the formation, but it's a little bit more flavorful, right? And that kind of uh, speaks to that uh, army thematic building where another one on, on one of Carl's videos where he talked about the zombie keyword in the undead list where you can give all zombies vicious. So if you want to bring a giant horde of zombie undead, that's now there's now a reason to do that. It's not an auto take, but it's a flavor of undead. So we're getting away from every undead army being just, you know, vampires and vampires and vampires. And instead, we've got a reason to take some of those more thematic army lists, right? Yeah, I'm really excited about the auras that they're introducing that brings up the flavor. Uh, initially, I have a Basilian army and I wanted to start uh, an Abyss army. And that's when the news of Kings of Water Edition dropped. So I stopped. I just paused making my Abyss army. And after the Basilian um, leak, I was pretty excited to play Basilia again. And I'm pretty excited to modify my Basilian army for third edition. And it's the smallest thing that makes me excited, like the healing aura from the Phoenix and this cleansing effect from the spellcaster that uh, removes hex and weaken. And I'm not even sure how useful that is going to be in third edition, but it just makes, it, makes, makes me feel that this is a unique effect that only this army has. So which makes me more excited about playing Basileia because I really want to have a very nice, good, army where it's all humans and angels and they're beautiful on the table and yeah i'd like to be able to play that and have fun with it yeah so let's talk a little bit about the army so what armies um have you tried to you've talked about so Paige, you've talked about having basilia you've talked about ratkin so what armies do you guys own what are your what are your main squeezes at the moment what are you guys playing we'll let gut uh answer that last all <laughs> right for, for, for reasons that you will know later on. <laughs> okay. Thanks. So I own uh, I own Red Kid. I actually have GW Lizard Man because I played Lizard Man in 8th edition. But I did not make a Salamander army because I was not excited by the Salamander options. Uh, mainly because I like the Slan Mage Priest in Lizard Man. This... Uh, blocks of warriors protecting this super powerful mage and there's no such thing in salamanders so i did not play salamanders and if they get interesting i would be able to build an army i in fact bought some models to make a salamander army then i also made a herd army which is comprised of uh, beast miniatures and toys toys i have sourced from all over singapore whenever i go out when I go to a departmental store, I go to the toy section and I see what beast I can I buy to make my army. And so that's a very, really cheap army that I made. And it's very, very uh, hodgepodge of uh, toys and miniatures. Then I have a Basilean army, which I initially wanted it to be all Mantic. Then when I assembled the Paladin Knights and the Elohai, I gave up. And I bought some Raging Heroes, which on hindsight were beautiful models, but really tough to deal with. I had to commission somebody to assemble the models for me because I don't want to assemble them. Then, yeah, then I wanted to start Abyssal. I bought a secondhand uh, Mantic Abyssal army from a player who didn't want to play Abyssals anymore. But it's all sitting in my shelf right now. I haven't built it up yet. So those are all the armies I have. My main squeeze is uh, the Empire of Dust. I'm a huge, huge fan of uh, Tomb Kings, so I own a 
significant collection of them. I like them because in Kings of War, the Empire of Darth does place more like six edition Tomb Kings. Movement matters, and you can create search traps, positioning, trap factors, chaff, uh, hitting people from unexpected angles. Uh, this is the stuff that I, I like. You know, uh, it tests my tactical skills. Uh, I also have a significant collection of Kingdoms of Men from the old GW Empire models. Recently, I used to get my son to play the game. I bought, you know, green plastic men and then <laughs> glued them to bases and created, a, you know, I think what, let me check, 1,250 points worth of KOM you know, using plastic tanks and you know, a souvenir metal cast catapult die sharp, uh, sharp sharpener. I recently also acquired uh, a lot of ogre models. So I have a substantial ogre army as well. Most of them are already assembled and painted, but there are a couple that are still uh, in sprue, which I will get to work on. Are, are they GW ogres or Mantic ogres? Uh, GW ogres from a retired player. Ah, I see. I bought Mantic ogres as well, but I have not assembled them. You guys are so dedicated. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, this, go on. Yeah, sure. So these are my personal uh, big three. I also have a force of elves. Uh, which I can consider more of a long-term project with no set deadline of completion. They've been sitting in, in uh, sprues and boxes and in my shelves for quite some time now. But the allure of uh, Empire of Dust and uh, version 3 coming out and the monolith with free search spells, those things get my Jimmy's wrestled, you know? <laughs> and finally, uh, over to you, Gat. Okay, I promise I won't take so long. I let actually me, have... Let <laughs> me introduce Gat first. God is a hoarder. <laughs> he has we every are, army. We are all hoarders, okay? Yeah, but, okay? I'm actually on easy army. Okay, it's easier to go go through my armies that way. <laughs> okay, all the different lists. Okay, firstly, as mentioned before, I was a wood elf player, so I do have a collection of elves, but I don't really quite like the style that of uh, elves in Kings of War, where it's very focused on archer hordes and Dragons. So I hope that third edition will give us uh, give us more options. Probably a MSU style, which I really like to play. Like Blade Stalkers in Elves are just sad. You know, they just die. My first real Kings of War army that is multi-base is actually dwarves. Majority for Mantic, because I I I am the so-called Mantic ambassador. So it, it's only fitting that I take a dwarf army. It's also funny because I'm a pretty big guy. I'm about 6'3". So a big guy playing dwarves is quite ironic. Yeah, so moving on, I have some uh, Mantic episode dwarves and Mantic goblins and orcs are all, they're all in spruce so to be built for futures. And as just like Paige, when our local store actually had a sale for ogres, for Mantic ogres, I snapped them up. I really like the Mantic ogres. I also really like the Mantic dwarves because they actually have legs and they look pretty good. Then uh, I have some forces of nature. I dabbled in them a bit because I have some elementals from my dwarves. So actually, it's easy to just cross over to have forces of nature. Then uh, I tried hurt, but it's not really my cup of tea. I really like the whole Bretonian aesthetic. So I have a nice brotherhood army, mostly unpainted at the moment. And uh, I have some uh, salamanders that I'm really looking forward to see how, how they are. And Trident Realms, I 
I snapped up a lot of uh, Wrath of King Hedros models, and they're pretty awesome for Trident Realms. And I also have some Mantic Nyads uh, that I want to start. But my main army at the moment is Dwarves, with a bit of Elves. Yeah, I hope I didn't, I didn't take too long. <laughs> Do you have Night Stalkers, God? Uh, I backed them. The, I backed the Kings of War uh, Vanguard Kickstarter. So I do have some Night Stalkers. We do have a Night Stalker player that he keeps whining about how underpowered they are. I, ju- I just want to make an army, a Night Stalker army, and win with it to prove it to prove to him that it's good. But that's on the back burner for now. <laughs> well, I think of all of the armies, I would say is not underpowered. Night Stalkers would be, you know. That's a very strong army played correctly. I've been beaten by Night Stalkers more times than I'd like to say. I've been beaten by them every time uh, as an ogre player. <laughs> I mean, yeah. their Shadow Hulk's a better giant, and they just they just have the tools. Yes, I agree. The Void Lurker is awesome. Void Lurker, Butchers. I mean, even if you face a player who knows how to use doppelgangers really well, that is terrifying. I've lost a game on the last turn because I underestimated how strong doppelgangers can be. They're a very clever army if you use them correctly. I, yeah. I love the Spectres. They're 14, 17 for a regiment, and it's uh, 10 attacks piercing one, and they have stealth, so they will outshoot the enemy shooters of similar caliber. So you guys have, it's fair to say, quite a few armies. Um and one of the criticisms that, you know, we talked a little bit about the packaging of Mantic, which wasn't really up to scratch in the old days. And some of their models are definitely an acquired taste. Recently, I think it's pretty much universal. People have said their modeling quality has dramatically increased, dramatically increased. Does anything in the the, the Mantic ranges, the, the newer Mantic ranges or the ranges that, ranges that are coming up, do they jump out at you? Is there anything you're saying that's a must-have for you? Definitely the Night Stalkers uh, range for me. I agree that the modeling technology has improved by leaps and bounds. I particularly like the terror and the mind screech. Those things capture the creepy Lovecraftian mood that I adore. I would want to start a Night Stalker's army uh, in the future, but uh, you know, with the family around, <laughs> that may be another side project. <laughs> Furthermore, um, just to get back on the main topic, the paint job on the website really does the models justice. The mind screech, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it's not available now, right? It's only available on the Vanguard box? Sure. I, I think it's I think it's available as part of the resin set for Vanguard with the other two resin models for Night Stalkers. Yeah, I really like the, the way you know, it's like a floating brain with the tentacles and the gaping maws all over the place. It's really, really cool. The Terror, on the other hand, you know, with this large, slimy bulk, you know, with... with uh, flailing appendages and you know that that creepy looking face it jumps out at me up for myself i really like the new basilean range since uh vanguard was uh kickstarted and i i did back vanguard and i actually have a painted warband vanguard warband that's basilean and yeah i even the new phoenix i i like it a lot I my my current Phoenix is actually from uh, Privateer Press, the Storm Raptor, which is a beautiful model. But the Mantic Phoenix is also very beautiful, so I'm keen to buy it if I if running two Phoenixes uh, is a viable option in third edition. So I think I like all of the Basilian releases so far. One gripe I have is that uh, I think the new Army box they mix the old sisters with the new sisters. So, which is something I didn't like. I really like the new sisters much more than the old ones. 
the old ones has have ugly faces. For myself, uh, as mentioned, I, I like the dwarves. I I actually have a dwarf still be morph. I love that model a lot. I mean, everyone thinks of Power Ranger when they see you on the battlefield. It's it's a cool model. It's resin. I really like the mantic resin monsters. They are not too. They are not impractical to bring around. And it's easy to transport. They're solid. They don't break easily. So I really like the new resin models, especially the fire elemental for the salamanders, which I also have. Uh, in general, I like most of the range, maybe except for the the elves. But I I I've, I saw the leaks for the dragons, so the dragons should be good. I'm looking forward to the dragons. Night stalkers are cool, but as mentioned, I have too many armies. So I admit, night stalkers are really nice, but the the the, the style doesn't appeal to me. Very Cthulhu. Authentically, I think it's an acquired taste. Not everybody will like them. And I definitely like the Northern Alliance as well. I think everybody likes the Northern Alliance. Just that I think too many people are going to jump on the third edition Northern Alliance bandwagon. So I'm probably not going to build that army. But they do look really, really nice. Uh, this is this is Rob's uh, uh, ethos as well, which is uh, give it time to bed in, give everyone else the time to, to play the Northern Alliance and then jump on, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I think at this point, Mantic should uh, tease the other new factions so that it could, you know, uh, have people interested in the new new factions as well. Not everybody on Northern Alliance because it's the only new thing that's that we know so far. That's why there's so much interest in it. What do you guys think about how they are going about releasing the information uh, from from Mantic standpoint? I think the leaks are really nice. Uh, the way Carl Pretzel Twinkie leaks them. <laughs> So and he touched on all the important stuff. So everybody, everybody likes the the what they hear from him so far. I'm sorry, Carl. I think your name should be Carl Prezelensky. I think that's the proper way to pronounce it. Yeah, you can pronounce that better than most Americans. So <laughs> congratulations. Yeah. So and he's a player himself. So when he talks about things, he knew he knows exactly what are the things that people are interested about, and he just gives just enough information to keep you interested, but without revealing the whole army to you. So I really like what Kyle is doing. Tip of the hat to you, for sure. There's two leak masters, aren't there, Mantic at the moment? You've got Kyle and you've got Dan King, right? So Kyle is, obviously, he's a company man, whereas I always find that Dan takes great glee in leaking as much as possible. And I've been watching, I think they're going to do another um, Four Foot Snake episode where he releases some more information. So I'll be really interested to see what he comes up with in there because uh, it's always fun hearing Dan kind of chuckling away as he releases more. But yeah, I'm really excited about the new Dracon models as well. Speaking as an elf player, you know, um, I spent a lot of time trying to find Dracon models and it's it's a pain, right? To try and find a decent Dracon model. So something decent from Mantic would be really good. I even had a friend who... Uh, refuses to play with non-mantic armies because he's that dedicated um he ended up buying some of the original dracon models for quite a lot of money really because they're pretty hard oh to get hold God. of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and he he modified he's an excellent painter shout out to steph by the way yeah. steph donovan he's a he's a really good player but he's an excellent modeler and some of the the modifications he made to them made them look really cool much cooler than you you'd think from those kind of shonky old models but the new ones they kind of remind me a little bit of the slasher models, but a bit more elegant. So I'm really keen to to see how those ones turn out, speaking as an elf player. Talking about that, I think the orc, uh, what do you call that? The lord on the, the wing slasher is uh, much nicer than the one from GW. I think everybody calls it the cabbage dragon because it's rounded and looks like a cabbage. Yeah, that's that's 
that's one model that's really nice. I think most of the monsters from Mantic are really nice. I like the Cronius as well. I don't, I don't like how he's been changed into more of a generic giant, but the model itself is really nice. And yeah, I think many of the monsters are very nice. Yeah, I think that's something that appeals to, to players, isn't it? You know, big models that make a massive impact. You know, it's it's difficult to get excited about a horde of infantry. It's very easy to get excited about a bloody great big monster with, you know, that's kind of snarling and jumping off the board. And that's that's been their strategy. Cool models with a lot of personality. Like the new goblin models, things like the, the winget, that's, you know, you don't see that um, elsewhere. And that's something that's unique to Mantic and really exciting. So I'm looking forward to a lot more of those kind of more unique Mantic-style miniatures coming out. Well, that, that's kind of sad, isn't it? That, yes, we do like the big monsters, but in the end, Kings of War's focus is that it is a ranks and flanks game. It's a rank and flanks game, and there is emphasis on infantry, and it's really sad that, oh, we can't make people excited about infantry. Even if they look good, we can't get people excited about the prospect of painting 40 infantry models. So I wonder if there's a solution to this, whether, I, I don't know what's the solution, but if there's a solution to this, it would be great because I guess the the trend for gaming in general is that people want to put in less effort. So that is why GW ditched the Ranks and Flanks game and go, went, made this uh, AOS skirmish and they focus on bigger models. If you notice, the scale of their models has been slowly creeping upwards. She's kind of sad because I'm one of those players that really like uh, mass infantry formations uh, more than monsters. I'm not too, I mean, I'm a bit neutral, you know, when it comes to uh, big gigantic releases from Antic. I'm actually looking forward to see more uh, 20, you know, uh, 28mm scale human size models that look great you know, when you put them on the table. I like to have massive hordes of uh, infantry uh, armies fighting uh, against each other. And when I do face monsters, uh, generally I would try to, I take great pleasure in trying to tie tie them down and negate what they do best. <laughs> so to sort of frustrate my opponent. Yeah, and I think that there's a type of player that, that goes for that big, and there's something really dramatic about big hordes of infantry, mass hordes of them. But like you say, it's pretty daunting. To think about, oh God, I've got to paint all of those models. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of the role that, that Vanguard, and the reason Vanguard was so successful was that it's a small entry kind of fee, isn't it, in terms of your models? You can paint up 10 models and you've got a warband. And from there, I think the intention was that people can start to think about expanding that out. Has Vanguard had much of an effect over there? Do people play it at all? Well, I've, I've been trying to play it more, but God is more interested in the big war game as of now. <laughs> yeah. So we played, I think, three games. God, did we play like three games? I think yeah, that's all the games I, I played. We played three games. I played uh, one more game with another player. I find it it's a bit difficult to push two games. Although they are, you can play Vanguard and move on to Kings of War. It's it's difficult to, you know, to be the ambassador and try to push two games. Yeah, ultimately they are two completely different systems. That's one of the key things, and actually one of the one of the hopes I had had for third edition, which is obvious that it's not going to happen, is that I was hoping that Kings of War third edition would go to D8 because that would kind of uh, synchronize with Vanguard a little bit better. Yeah, and the thing about Vanguard is it is, I would argue that it is a more complex game than Kings of War itself. So that that it kind of speaks something. It's supposed to be a skirmish game, but it's as complex, if not more complex, than the, the big war game. 
when you think about Kings of War, it's actually, you think about infantry, a horde of infantry has 40 models, but it's actually just one unit. It's one footprint. It can never split up into 40. So you're playing a game with actually 11 to 15 models, which is the skirmish game is about there as well. I think one of the missed opportunity for Vanguard is, is it could have been a simpler game. It is a great game. I've played it and I I think the rule set is really nice because I've played quite a few other skirmish games and I and when I tried Vanguard I knew oh that's why they used this rule that's why they did that rule and I think it's really elegantly done. It's just that it's quite a complex game. If I speak about Games Workshop on the other hand they just released Warcry which is the fantasy skirmish game and it, it is a very simple game and I think they have they are enjoying a lot of success with it because of how simple it is. It is the simplest war game I have ever played and the tech is resolved in one die roll. Just roll to wound, that's it. In Vanguard there's still two die roll. There's a roll to wound and there's a roll to save and then there's a roll to see if you kill the opponent when he's down to zero health. In Warcry it's down to one die roll and if Vanguard was something like Warcry, it would have been a massive hit. Yeah, so if we're looking to to kind of recruit people into Kings of War, thinking about those ex-Warhammer players, those 40k players, what, what would be your advice to them looking to try out Kings of War? My advice to them would be uh, coming from two, two aspects. One is, let's touch upon the modeling aspect first. Because there is no true line of sight uh, in Kings of War, because there exists uh, multi-basing, uh, it presents a lot of good modeling opportunities for people that like to tinker uh, with their toys. There's freedom, you know, models from a wide variety of different manufacturers. If you already have an existing, uh, you know, Warhammer army, just remind, you know, from a modeling point of view, minimal conversion is needed, you know, if at all. In terms of um, game balance, it would appeal to those players that would like to have a game of skill. The rules are very clean. It's clear. You know, there are no, no, very seldom you can encounter you know, very vague moments where you would argue over which interpretation of the rule book is correct, you know, for the next half an hour or so, and you are not playing. I think a lot of uh, ex-fantasy, Warhammer fantasy players have given it a look. Uh, when they don't jump in, it's because they would think that it's too simple. The game is too simple. And at that point of time, because... Most of our fantasy players were ETC players. They were also looking at the Ninth Age, which is the community version, which is more familiar to what they've been playing, which is a, which is basically like Warhammer Fantasy 8.5. At that point of time, when they looked at it, when the Warhammer End Times happened, when the Sundering happened, uh, at that point, they have already decided that, oh, Kings of War is too simple compared to what I've been playing and been used to. So I would say that right now, there's much more variety. There's uh, more interesting spells. There's unique, more a bit more unique rules and giving each army unique flavor. So that I think that is the one that we would like will attract ex-fantasy players back. It's like, look at it now. It's much more flavorful. It's much more interesting. You can uh, build more lists now. Because back then, when they looked at the rule set and they've kind of looked at it and they think that there's not much variety. You have to play Kings of War enough times to realize the nuances of the strategy and the nuances between units. So as a new player looking in, you don't realize the difference and that's what put some of the players off, the fantasy players. 
if I want to add to that, when the end times happened, if I'm not wrong, there was no uncharted empires. So a lot of them had armies that did not really fit well into Kings of War. And also, I remember playing with some of them. They they played, they tried to play Kings of War the same way they played Warhammer, which doesn't work. You know, they tried to go for the most powerful units, the best. Uh, and at that time, Kings of War, it wasn't as balanced. I mean, you, you still had uh, Defense 6 uh, heroes with regeneration running around, you know, cheesy stuff like that. So they did, re- they did really appeal to them. But now the game, as mentioned, it's uh, it's a lot more flavorful. There's more factions, there's more spells, there's more items, there's more balance. So uh, it's it's the best time to, to, to hop on, especially with, with Third Ed around the corner. Yeah, just to add up on that, right? Um, fundamentally, Kings of War's play style is more reminiscent of uh, Warhammer 6 Ed and 7 Ed. And it is a drastic difference uh, from Warhammer 8 Ad. If you are an ex Warhammer player from 8 Ad, you know, it is understandable that the style of the gameplay, you know, where it focuses on, is a bit different from what you're used to. But if you are a 6th edition or 7th edition player or even earlier, then this would fit right in because it takes upon you know, um, what makes it great and expands it even further. So let's talk a little bit about tournaments. So, you know, are there any tournaments for Kings of War over there? I know you've just had the first kind of Penang versus Singapore team tournament, but are there any other tournaments in the area? Or is it is it uh, is it kind of too new in the Kings of War journey over there? Uh, basically, we have had uh, two tournaments so far. Uh, one in 2017 and one last year in 2018. So we had about eight players for the first one. The second tournament, it was second tournament was more of a international campaign day uh, tournament where we had uh, good versus evil. That was pretty fun as well. So I'm the so-called TO. So I'm the one that's trying to rally people to come and play the tournament because, as mentioned, a lot of players only play for tournaments. They are that competitive. So, but at the same time, having too many tournaments might scare off more casual players. So it's it's a bit difficult, especially when we have we as a, as the players we have to be the ones organizing the tournaments. For a lot of uh, game stores, it's the the store itself that organizes the tournament. But we're looking at uh, I mean we just had the first ever Penang versus Singapore tournament. We're looking at uh, making it an annual event, and uh, hopefully we'll we've third at around the corner. We can have a. We are we are plans to have a, a smaller, a pontage tournaments for the new players or people, players who have not uh, who have been out of the game for a while to you know to come come back and try. I hope we can have a Asia Masters in the near future. That will be awesome. In Penang, it's all local, uh, self-organized tournaments because our player base isn't that big. Our players are not that competitive. You know, we game every weekend. You know, and we try to do at least. Two local tournaments a year. These are very small-scale events, numbering between four to six players. So, like what get mentioned, we do hope to get in touch with the wider community here in Asia, and see what the future brings. Then, so let's talk about the the first Penang versus Singapore team tournament. So, Gad, were you the the TO for this tournament? Uh, I was a co-TO. I mean, mainly it was organized by Penang by Nick and uh, also Desmond, another uh, another player. 
Yeah, but I, I was the uh, so-called captain of the Singapore team and tried to help to organize things from the Singapore end. So let's, let's give us a bit of a lowdown then. So when was it? Where was it? How many points? Number of players? Give us a, give us a flavor of the event. So we had this tournament on uh, August 10th uh, in Penang, you know, our, our clubhouse. We are happy to host our Singaporean friends at the time killer base, as we call it. So each player uh, has to come up with two lists, one two five zero points and two two five zero points. There were a total of eight players, you know, four each from Penang and Singapore. So because this was a team game, you know, so we took team scoring, you know, and each player has to play one game, you know, at a one two five zero, and two games at two two five zero. So we use the latest Clash of Kings uh, and the scenarios within. We use uh, chess clocks, tables, and scenarios were preset by a neutral party, and there were no repeat matchups and no repeat uh, tables. Get you add anything in? Yeah, uh, I was really uh, amazed by the tables. I remember there was a desert table, there was a snow table, there was a hell table, and there was a jungle table. So it, that that really that was pretty fun, and every table had very unique terrain setups. Our terrain making gurus uh, went into overdrive to sort of craft out the terrain that is uh, suitable for that game because it's it means a lot to us for our first annual <laughs> event. Um, okay, moving on to army mix. So in, from Penang, you know, you have I have uh, you have myself uh, piloting the Empire of Dust, uh, Salamanders, uh, Varangur, and Redkin. From Singapore, uh, Gad is the one piloting dwarves. We have a Night Stalker, uh, Brotherhood, and Undead as well. Uh, th- that was the mix. Two of our players, two me and me and the Brotherhood player, we actually took a road trip all the way to Penang. It took about. 12 hours with all the traffic and the customs. In uh, true American fashion, they drove 12 yeah. hours to this tournament. I love it. That's amazing. Yeah, and it was it was a it was a national it was a uh, holiday weekend, so there was a lot of people traveling to and from Malaysia and Singapore. So usually it takes about seven hours to drive there. Yeah, so two of us drove, and two of two of the others uh, actually uh, flew there. It, it's only a, an hour flight. But on the way to to the tournament, they encountered some turbulence and they had to land in Kuala Lumpur, the capital. So uh, they were delayed. So you know, they, and they were traveling with their with their spouse and wife. So as a result, they had to miss the first game due to uh, we call it the storm of chaos. I think calling it a turbulence is underselling it. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it, it, it was, was a, a storm. It was a massive storm. You know, one of the. Uh, largest that we have had. I think Penang was on the tail end of this network came near typhoon. So I think the Singapore uh, our Singaporean friends were sort of worried whether the models were damaged <laughs> from the you know turbulence. But uh, luckily that uh, every, everything worked out fine and we managed to meet up the next day. Check whether the models were damaged first. Check on the <laughs> wife <guess>. later. <laughs> Get your priorities right. Absolutely. So um, who who won? Everyone won on that day. <laughs> oh no! Come on now. This is okay. uh... the, the Singapore team uh, went home with the trophy. Uh, they they took the lead uh, by a hairline. It was an eight point lead. The Penang home team uh, managed to win best overall player by the Salamander player of of all armies. I know I know Salamanders get a bad rap of you know uh, not being that good of an army, but our Salamander player won all three games uh, in his matchups. And then uh, everyone made new friends, you know, expanded our horizon on how the game can be played in different metas. 
and shared a memorable experience together. That, that's my take on it. Get what about you? Yeah, we won. We went to Penang and we won. That's all that matters. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, we were actually uh, losing because I actually lost my game against the first Salamander player. I mean, it was my first time playing 1-2-5-0 and he had two hordes of Primes and two hordes of Tyrants. I mean, I didn't have the firepower to deal with so much nerve and hordes. So I actually lost the first game and we were actually losing through the second game. So, But we managed to claw back and win the third game. Somehow, yeah. I actually played with Nick as well uh, for our second game, which was a very, was an epic matchup. It was very evenly matched and it was yes, a draw, yes. I believe. Yes, it was. Very nice game with you, guys. Yes. So is this, you're saying this is going to be an annual event now, the, the annual uh, Penang versus Singapore team tournament? Yes, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, we, we actually call it the Islander Challenge because both of Penang, both Penang and Singapore are islands. Both are very small. Penang, I believe, is a bit smaller than Singapore. So we, we plan to have it every year and hopefully maybe Paige can join us for the next year. Yeah, Paige, we were all talking about how you yeah. have made a difference and yeah, it wouldn't even have been close with you. I, yeah. Thankfully, Paige did not join. You know, I was just talking to him earlier and you know, Penang wouldn't have stand a chance. <laughs> I think I think I would have been uh, murdered if Singapore didn't win and they come back and they're like, because you didn't go or something like that. Yeah, thank God we won. And yeah, that, that, that was really cool. But I think from all the pictures and the, the, the bad commentary they sent, I think the Penang players are really, really good as well. So yeah. kudos to them. Thank you. All right. But this is something worth mentioning is that Paige is the killer player, right? Because uh, you participated in the Adam Padley's Global Kings of War uh, Universal Battle Tournament and you took second place. Am I right, Paige? Uh, yeah, I did, I, it was totally by surprise, but I ended up overall second. And... I was not in the final top table. I was in the second table, so I managed to uh, have more points than the, the 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 losing player in on the top table. So yeah, and it was pretty surprising considering that I only got a draw in my first game, and I almost lost it. I first charge of the game, and I made a huge mistake. I forgot to calculate and snare, and I lost my horde of Elohai for nothing. Oh my goodness. So that was really scary. But um, the, the tournament allows us to switch armies throughout. So from the second game onwards, uh, I've been playing with Abyssals, which uh, kind of uh, fit my playstyle more, I guess. I was trying to wrap my head around Basilian a lot, but I really can't uh, make a Basilian list work. But with Abyssals, uh, it came more much more naturally to me. So yeah, managed to get got second place overall and how did you find because obviously you, so who did you play through your matches can you remember um my first game was against uh ian sturgis he played trident realms and i think he's a ringer player my initial opponent uh had to drop out of the tournament before we even got our game in and he was filling in as a ringer player for the tournament and he was playing trident realms so that game i got a draw I think I was losing on attrition, but I managed to draw on the scenario because uh, Basilians move very fast. I was managed able to capitalize more on the objective with uh, a smaller force so that I could manage to get a draw out of it. My second game was uh, against uh, Steve Foster. He was playing Goblins. And the 
the pity the pity about that game was uh, we played till like turn three, and he realized he forgot to deploy some of his models. So that was really a bummer. The third game was against uh, Adam Padley himself, and it was supposedly a bad matchup for me because uh, Abyssals have generally lower defense, especially I'm playing a lot of Tortured Souls, and he has uh, is a goblin shooting list with lots of uh, fleabag rider sniffs. Not only a lot of shooting, but a lot of mobile shooting as well. And I think there were some bad rolls that didn't go his way, and I managed to capitalize on that. And in fact, at the end of the game, I was losing on attrition, but the scenario was dominate, and he had one regiment of sniffs, which is unit strength two, while I have a horde of lava, which does nothing but just stand there. And I won on a unit strength of three, just for the horde of lava. And game four, game four was against an Australian player called Yen, and um, he's playing. He played this Empire of Dust, so two mummies and two bone dragons and a bone giant, so on and so forth. So how that game went, uh, I had more flyers, so I was able to spread out and thin out his force, so he couldn't do as much of the search shenanigans that Empire of Dust uh, used to do. And yeah, game five was against uh, Shannon, who's playing ogres. He was trying this uh, ogre spam. Uh, what do you call that? The warlocks? The warlocks are uh, trying to take advantage of uh, hordes increasing their spells. So that was another list that uh, I played against. And uh, once again, I played my Abyssals, and I knew that that playstyle would like to bunker a lot, and I had to try to surround him and find openings to get break, break through that bunker. Yeah, so that's my five games, and I actually did uh, battle reports for four of the five games. I didn't manage to uh, take screenshots for my second games against Steve, so the rest of them are going into battle reports on uh, my YouTube channel that I just started out. Yeah, so the YouTube channel is called Newbie Dice, and I'm featuring all the battle reports of those games there. Cool. So, you know, that list, you've got uh, two UK Masters players. Uh, you know, uh, you've got Adam and, and Ian Sturgis is actually a very good player. And you had Shannon Schumacher. How did you find the standard? Was it tougher than you expected? Was it easier than you expected playing in an international field? The standard was really high. I was definitely sweating throughout all my games. <laughs> So thankfully, they can't see me through the, through, through the computer screen. I was very nervous and I was really grinding grinding my teeth and really busting my brain trying to figure out how, how, how to play the games. And I think one of the things about the game was uh, the, the feelings were the game felt a little bit more casual. And some players, I think, also tried new lists. So they might not be necessarily bringing their strongest list because they probably wanted to take advantage of the league to try new things. And especially, it's all digital, so they might be trying things models that they don't have. Um, Ian has told me that uh, he was trying a totally new list because at the time, Clash of Kings was still pretty new, and I think um, a lot of the interesting... There was a lot of changes to Trident Realms this year, and I think he was trying quite a bit of the new Trident Realm stuff. 
back to the local scene. So what what are your hopes for the Kings of War scene over there? Obviously, version three is coming out. Do you think that will have an impact? Um, are you hoping for people to come back and try out the game? What, what's your hopes for the Kings of War scene in, in Malaysia and Singapore going forwards? Uh, for Malaysia, my hope is to have uh, more exposure uh, for Kings of War. I personally think it is a great game and deserves the attention you know, uh, from more people. Version 3 is going to have a major impact um, from what I've seen so far from the leaks. The increase in uh, flavor and, and identity may help to you know, uh, sway some fancitas over. Personally, I'm excited to see how EOD is coming out. My hope is that Mantic to have a bit more presence uh, in Malaysia. Because right now, pretty much there's nothing, you know, from from Mantic here that could sort of signal, hey, look, this is Kings of War. It's a great game. You guys should at least give it a try. I hope to see uh, more balance done. Uh, Not to say that it's bad right now. I just hope that the quality will continue. And I hope to see more visitors here because we are keen to expand our network, you know, at the very least within the Southeast Asian region. Uh, we're all pretty excited for Tadet. I mean, as mentioned uh, by Nick, we do have players waiting for Tadet to jump back in. I've actually done a few demo games to players who are coming back from Fantasy, and they already enjoy Second Ed already, so I think they will really take well to to Third Ed. Uh, my hope is uh, to actually help out Malaysia in some way. Okay, basically, I'm going to the Casual Kings in UK in about two weeks' time. So maybe, I mean, my I was thinking I could, I could speak to Mantic, uh, Ronnie, or someone in Mantic to, to see how Mantic can actually help push the game in, in Southeast Asia, in Singapore, and in Malaysia. Because currently, uh, the way Penang gets their stuff, or the Mantic stuff, is basically we order it, and if one of them pops by Singapore, we'll actually pass it to them, and he'll hand carry it back to, to Penang. So when people from Penang visit Singapore and vice versa. So if we can get a presence in one of the local gaming stores over in Penang, that that would be fantastic. Do you guys know about the Pathfinder program? I'm fairly certain it doesn't exist over there, but if you're having that conversation, it's worth, because, Gad, you're basically doing the job anyway. Um, Yeah. So I think the Pathfinder program is a great way to get new players in. And since you're kind of doing it already... I think you know having that conversation with with uh, Rob or Matt or Ronnie when you're over at Clash of Kings. By the way, it will be great to see you mm-hmm. um, because I'll be there as well. Looking um, forward. I think that's yeah, very much so. I think that'd be a, a great way to to start thinking about getting Mantic really seriously invested in the Far East market because it is a huge market. Yes, definitely. Yeah, God, how, how come you don't have the Pathfinder program or status? Yeah, curiously as well. Okay, Okay. basically, I didn't really have a fully painted army for quite a while, but uh, until the team tournament. So uh, I've actually wrote into Mantic and Rob about it. So hopefully I'll be a Pathfinder soon. Yeah. I see. And I think one of our players in Singapore, he's uh, looking to start a game store. And if he does, Kings of War will be the de facto fantasy game that will be pushed within the store. I think one of the key things about pushing a game is that, uh, yeah, it's it's great if you have a champion for the game like God, but the for the store to promote the game or support the game is also very important. The staff 
needs to be actively promoting the game because we are not there all the time. We, are, we can be there at most three or four evenings in a week, but we're not there all the time. It is the staff that needs to introduce the game to any possible interested people to say, hey, why not you try Kings of War? Because Kings of War product, Mantic product sitting on the shelf itself is not going to sell like GW. So that's one of the key things that needs to happen. And if our if our fellow player sets up the store, I really want to do this uh, giant display of a uh, Basilean versus uh, Abyssals, which are the two armies that I'm working on. And on in the middle of the display, there will be this mountain with the words Kings of War engraved into it, hopefully. That, and then you just have the product right next to this beautiful diorama that would attract people to play. I think I think it sounds like we need two pathfinders here. Uh, you guys have got a great vision. What do you think Mantic could do more to support the growth of the game for the Asian market? I believe they they I mean from from what I can tell so far, they really support local gaming stores. Actually, one of the newer gaming stores that started to carry uh, Mantic product initially, they did not display any of the, any product on their on their shelves because their their store is pretty very small, probably about. Uh, 20 square meters and uh, but when we ordered more and more and more mantic items they brought in some stock they started to display so it's it's like a chicken and egg uh, problem we need more stock but we also need people to buy mantic product if they can link up more with the uh, with the local stores maybe send them some items to uh, to help demos and that will help to actually stores to actually carry the product because comparing comparing Mantic to GW you can really get a lot of bang for your buck as compared to GW so it's not really a big financial investment for the stores in my opinion so that is one way they could go I think the key to success in Asia is to enter the China market once there's a lot of Chinese player base then you, it's worthwhile to spend more effort in China because Singapore is very small. We are Our population is 6 million and China is 1.4 billion. Even if a small percentage of Chinese people play the game, that's going to be leaps and bounds more than Singaporean players. And once you unlock that China market and then you, you are able to support the rest of Asia because there's enough player base and market in China and the rest of Asia to work on. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And, and let's talk about that a little bit. Um, I was talking to a guy called Dan Adams. I don't know if you know him. He's um, He runs the Paint All the Minis podcast, which is an excellent podcast where he chats to people about painting and war games. And he has some, and Ronnie's been on that podcast a number of times. And Dan's a, a, a fan of Kings of War. He's currently living in Shenzhen in China. And I had a chat to him about the Chinese market because, uh, you know, my wife is uh, was born in China um, and we have family there, and at some point in the future, we hope to move there. So I was really interested about what the gaming market is like there. And basically what he said was, it's GW. If you want to play something else, you play with a little group of friends and you play in your own houses because getting hold of anything is nearly impossible. Um, and in terms of player base, obviously they can't access the media channels that we have. You know, We've talked a bit about, for whatever reason, in the West, Facebook is where uh, wargaming is discussed. Full stop. If you're a historical war gamer, if you're a Kings of War war gamer, if you're a GW war gamer, it's Facebook, and you know you guys communicate via WhatsApp, but they don't have these channels. It's all WeChat 
in China. We looked at our listener stats. We actually have quite a few listeners in China, so in which case, shout out to you guys. Um, what's your advice about how we could, about how Mantic might be able to access that market? I mean, obviously, China is a very different world to Singapore and Malaysia, but um, from your experience and your knowledge, well, how, you know, how could Mantic begin to access that market? That is a very tricky question for us as well, because I'm really not familiar with the gaming scene in China. And for the reasons you have explained, they don't use Facebook, they don't use WhatsApp, they don't use Google. All Google services are blocked in China. So even the search engine, even YouTube, even um, I think Gmail. So they have that Chinese, Chinese China version of all these services. So there are some savvy, savvy Chinese people who use VPN to, to access the Western services. But uh, by and large, I think they are their own community that does the services they use, like uh, WeChat. And I think the their version of Facebook, I think, is Weibo or something like that. Mm. So, um, yeah, if there are Chinese listeners listening right now, do uh, help contact us. I think the people in China knows how best to contact people outside of China than us trying to contact people in China. So hopefully we can get in touch with people from China and we can figure out this puzzle together. And well, it's it's nice to hear that there is a GW scene in uh, in China. At least at least GW is there, and that means uh, there's possibility of other war games entering the market. So yeah, I think we need a few people who are familiar with the market to figure this out. And then yeah, once the once. Once the window or the portal is open, we are able to access the market. Uh, I personally think that one way to go get into China, the China market is through Hong Kong. Uh, I, I've been to Hong Kong before. I've actually been to their, uh, their game stores. Uh, actually, one of the former Warhammer Fantasy players, uh, Paige, I, I'm not sure if you know Elvin, he's based in Hong Kong. So I'm not familiar. Yeah, so he, uh, they they do play some night age there somehow some way, uh, but it's not very big. So probably if you can go through the Hong Kong market and Shenzhen is just next to Hong Kong, so maybe Hong Kong would be a good place to start. It's there's more expats there, it's uh they speak more English in in Hong Kong as well. So maybe meant to try to start with Hong Kong and then move on to different parts of China. Yeah, but putting it out there, if there are Chinese listeners listening to this Countercharge podcast, do try to contact us so that we, we can work something out. Right? This Mandarin SOS going out, please uh, <laughs> come in contact with us so that we can figure out how we can work together to bring uh, Mantic Games more to Asia. Yeah, your Mandarin is really awesome. Yeah, your Mandarin is better than mine. I I, I did the brush. <laughs> <laughs> My Mandarin is aided by the power of Google Translate. Uh, so, yeah, and, speak, your, and oh, your wife. Speaking of Google Translate, right? You know, I think one of the areas which Mandy could work on is maybe okay. Obviously, we need to speak the tongue, not language. But in, I've taken a look at a few of these GW China products. And the language is atrocious. They literally use Google Translate. You know, it's it's really really bad for for jokes and laughs. You know, we just look at the Chinese uh, codexes, and then me and my friends we just 
poke fun and have a, have a good laugh of it. So if Mantic can get you know dedicated uh, Chinese language translators, uh, then it would help a lot to sort of deliver the correct message to the audience. Of course, exposure, accessibility to models and rules, alternative platforms to spread the word. I know what Paige mentioned earlier for under Wayport. Uh, maybe a, you also probably need a passionate person to toot your horn. And then I think culturally, wargaming is it's a niche hobby here in Asia. Steve has mentioned that you know uh, it originated from UK, and you know you have quite a number of people who play you know uh, war games, you know even when they are old. But certainly that's not the case here. It's sort of a, a quiet taste, um, and it culturally it's based on Western fantasy. I cannot answer the question when you know someone actually asked me before what is an elf. You know, one of the locals asked me what is an elf. Being a fan of Tolkien, obviously I know you know the general tropes of what an elf is, but to you know, some people you know in the Asian market, this can be something difficult to comprehend and you know uh, not easy to empathize with. So perhaps introduction you know, of Oriental flavored factions could ease new players into the genre into the game. My two pants on it. Yeah, I I, I think that, that 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 is one way because uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but in China, the romance of the three kingdoms is pretty big. There's a lot of video games. It's there are even miniatures, 20mm miniatures of of all the different characters and and all, all the different Chinese armies, which is uh, which is quite sad. Why GW did not expand on the Cathay and the Nippon factions or areas in the Warhammer old world? So if if they could release something more oriental theme, that that that, that could also pull in more more interest in the China market. Yeah, Romance of the Three Kingdoms is a historical period in China. I think it's about, uh, I think the period of 0 to 200 AD. And it's uh, based, historically, it's a real uh, war and between three three commanders, three generals. And there's a lot of uh, fiction and history written about this uh, period and a lot of law, a lot of uh, uh, wonderful generals and advisors and warriors and princes in this era and uh, the whole of the whole Chinese population in China and out of China pretty much like this like this uh, historical period and if Mantic can uh, tweak maybe the historicals to release towards this Three Kingdoms era it might be a big hit. Right, I've been trying to to. Because my next army was going to be either historicals or kingdoms of men, uh, based on a, a Chinese uh, miniatures, and I've been desperately trying to find some some miniatures from China that can represent. But a lot of the three kingdoms miniatures are they're made in weird scales, so either forty mil or fifty four mil, and they're not quite suitable. So I'm still searching. But I will throw I'll throw out my I have a WeChat ID. So if uh, if there are listeners in China, please do hit me up. And this is slightly embarrassing because I I created this ID when I was playing Mass Effect, right? So my ID is is boom b o o m underscore diggity d i g g e d y. All right. So if you're on WeChat and you're in China, do hit me up, um, and let's have a chat. And another thing to say about Three Kingdoms, um, if uh, Western listeners are familiar with the Dynasty Warriors games. Uh, that's based on that historical era. It is fan, you know, fantastically popular in, in China uh, and has been for quite some time. So that's not going to go away, right? Yeah, there's a lot of video games that uh, remakes and 
based on this era, there's a lot of uh, movies and television shows and dramas that keeps uh, re remaking stories on this era. And this era is mixed with uh, fact and fiction as well. So there are some battles that are so legendary that it must be myth, right? Like one person killing thousands. So it's pretty amazing, this era. Yeah, I think recently uh, Creative Assembly created, uh, they launched Total War, Three Kingdoms, which helps a lot in sort of exposing uh, this era to, to the Western world. So it's it's a very big thing over here. And not only uh, from the from the Chinese point of view, it impacts, you know, the regional Vietnamese, Cambodian, Korean, and Japanese history as well. So if Mantic releases an army that touches upon, you know, familiar cultures, you know, that, that the locals can empathize with, then I think uh, it will go a long way to make their footprint here. I think we've covered the, the A to Z of uh, Far East Gaming as far as we can in Kings of War. So let's have a quick break. Then we'll do some shout outs and wrap up the show. This is Counter Charge, your podcast for all things Kings of War. Welcome back to Counter Charge, and we're going to wrap up the show. Before we do, let's go down the line and let's get some announcements and talk about what upcoming tournaments you have, YouTube channels, people you want to you want to thank. Paige, let's start with you. All right, for myself, I just recently started my own YouTube channel, so I talked about it earlier. It is New B Dice, N E W B I E Dice, and you can search the channel on YouTube, and I post my battle report links on uh, the fanatics and kings of war worldwide and uh Counter charge after dark as well so do hit me out on that uh, it is well after diving into it it is quite a lot of effort to make better report videos so and it's uh the way i make the videos are quite different it's the style of battle reports that i like which uh, when i watch battle reports i like to learn new tactics so when I make those reports, uh, it's talking a lot of the tactical point of views and I summarize the combat so that we dive more towards the tactics and decisions and learning points of every game. So I think it's not for everybody, but if there's something you like, I think you'd love the reports that I make. So do hope to see more guys watching the reports because it's quite a lot of effort to do. So yeah. I, I've been watching some of your battle reports and I would uh, echo that I think they are excellent. I've learned a lot from watching, you know, Paige is obviously a very, very good player and, you know, you really helped me. Uh, so your first one was on a Rakim battle and your tactics about things like the uh, checkerboard deployment, things like that really helped me as a Rakim player. So I heartily recommend Paige's Newbie Dice YouTube channel. You should definitely check it out. Wow, thank you. And Gad, over to you, sir. Thank you, Rob. So I uh, just want to thank Paige. Paige has been my uh, has been my sparring partner for the past few years now. Partner have, in crime. Yeah, we have had maybe 50 or 60 games so far and hopefully more more to come. Uh, thanks to you, Rob. Thanks to Steve. And uh, I, I just, I just, I'm pretty excited for uh, the UK Casual Kicks. I'm looking forward to meeting a lot of people. A lot of people have been very fantastic, friendly to me, like Nick, Dan, Dan King, so looking forward to meeting all of you, including you, Steve. And uh, yeah, just say hi to everybody who's playing Kings of War in Asia, wherever. Uh, I hope to see you. We have, we are thinking of uh, heading down to one of the tournaments in uh, Australia, because Australia is pretty close to Singapore by a five to six hours flight. So they also have a significant population there. So I'm looking forward to meeting 
guys from the Diaries Fire crew, Matt, uh, Matt Selig and uh, Spoon, and so it's it's fantastic how Kings of War has brought us all together through the internet, through Facebook. We actually build this community, so hopefully we can we can grow we can grow further in the future. Yeah, God, yeah, he's he's such a PR guy. He's going around the world meeting all these new friends. And I do know these people. I listen to all these podcasts, Direct Misfire, Plug Radio. All, all the Mantic podcasts are on my phone. Well, in most of the Facebook channels and uh, as well as these, um, what do you call them, YouTube battle reports. We do watch and listen to most of them. So yeah, we know these names and you might not all know us, but we know all of you. Yeah, and another thing is, uh, I'm actually I actually have a site. It's not quite up yet, but it should be up by the time this podcast is released. It's five plus to hit com. Basically, I I I found out that there's a lot of uh, King's of resource on the web, but it's not really uh, organized or like for new players. Because a lot of uh, one one of the pet peeves that new players tell me when they join Kings of War the community is like there's no better reports there's no coverage but people want to read about the game people want to listen to the podcast so through my website and I hope I also have some content on my own to to drive traffic but mainly is to list all the different resources that is out there for Kings of War all the podcasts all the YouTube channels and all the websites that are dedicated to Kings of War so I, I think that would really help that'd be awesome it's like a central directory for all the Kings of War resources yeah, so it's five, uh, like as in the, the the number five, plus to hit.com. Over to you, Nicholas. Thank you. I would like to shout out uh, to Winsun, who is uh, my first ever cow victim. Uh, <laughs> and also to Desmond, who is a constant present and keen supporter of Kings of War in Penang. Also showing people that you know, salamanders can actually win games. I would also like to thank God uh, for being the connector, the prime connector to the wider Kings of War community here in Asia. I actually thought that, you know, we are the only small group here playing in Southeast Asia until I, I saw Gat commenting on uh, Fanatics. They said, hey, this guy is from Singapore. And then we sort of get in touch and then uh, where we are today. I would also like to thank our small but supportive com- community in Penang. Uh, without you all, I would not be on counter charge today. We have a farewell uh, tourney uh, for Second Ed coming up in late November. I know Third Ed is out by October, but by the time it reaches us, it'll probably be November or December. It'll be a larger event than usual. We may, have, we may master up to six to eight players. We'll see how, how that goes. And then in Penang, we are already a world-famous tourist destination. Now you have another reason to visit us. Come for the food, stay for the game. <laughs> Finally, I would like to... Shout out to the Thai Kings of War players in Bangkok and our single player in Bali. We hope to see you all soon in our regional, our sorry, our annual regional games. That's awesome. It's it's really fun to see Kings of War going strong in areas that you know maybe we we didn't even know about. So it's it's growing. It's certainly growing, and with your help, it's going to continue to grow. And at some point, we need to have some kind of international masters, right, where we bring the best of the best from all over the world and just see, you know, if what they say is true about the UK that the UK produces the best war gamers. Because I I know the US would beg to differ, and I'm sure Singapore and Malaysia would say the same thing. So well, based on yeah. uh, Adam's tournament, apparently Australia makes the best war gamers. So let's see. But uh, Jeff is 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 a fantastic player. I, w- I would love to play him, and he's he's probably won the Australian Masters like a few years in a row or something like that. So Jeff Trash or Trish, I can't pronounce his name. Trash, I think. Trash. Oh, okay. Mm. 
Before we get out of here, I just want to thank you guys for coming on the show. This was a lot of fun, and I hope to do it again real soon. But I think that's going to do us tonight. And until next time, 继续反击 keep countercharging. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Countercharge. Please let us know what you thought of the show by emailing us at counterchargepodcast at gmail dot com on Twitter at countercharge fifteen. If you enjoy the show, you can help others find out about it by leaving positive reviews on iTunes. Until next time, keep countercharging. Music is a composition of Kevin McLeod and is licensed under Creative Commons. <laughs> so I am so glad that Steve is doing that because I would, you guys would be here all day if I was trying to do that. Oh, let me try again. Let me try again. Let me try again. All right, I think you can try from uh, Namo Jingtian, right? Yeah, but Rob's gonna have to cut it in, and you won't know which bit to cut in. So、oh, I, he's got to get it. He's no pressure. He's just got to get it all in、yeah. one good take.